This is the Fail Fast Podcast. Stories of entrepreneurs who looked at failure in the eyes and didn't give up. With your host, the online sales master, Quinn Amorum. Welcome back, my friends. Today, we have a very special guest who is a serial entrepreneur who's building multi-million dollar companies. He has led International Trade Powerhouse Global Regency as the CEO for over 15 years. He's also considered an expert in China sourcing, supply chain, private label, brand licensing, and that is pretty much what we're going to be talking about today with our very special guest, David Hoffman. How's it going, David? Good, good. Thanks for having me. How are you doing? Very good. It's a pleasure to have you here and <laughs> nice to see a, a friendly smile, David. Thank you. <laughs> You're living in China and you've been there for, for many years now. Is this only because of the business? Yes, it is. Um, I, came, I came here actually about 16 years ago from South Africa, if you can't recognize the accent. And um, my, my actual idea was to come here for one year and then move on to somewhere like Australia. And I never, ever thought that I would get stuck in China slash Hong Kong for so many years. And 16 years later, here I am. And all just because of the business opportunities it presented and the pace that things happen, it was quite exciting. 16 years in, is business the only thing that holds you there? Because by now, of course, you have a family. And so there has to be a combination of good things to keep you there. Is that right? Yeah, I think, um, yeah, definitely. I mean, I met my family here and my son was born here. So this is home for us now. Um, I mean, of course, it's. A, I mean, Hong Kong, where, where I actually live, is a, is probably one of the most amazing cities in the world. Um, it's a bit like the New York of Asia. So, I mean, we love it here. It's a very different kind of lifestyle, but uh, we do love it here. So it does, it does keep us here. The pace and the momentum of things. It's an exciting city, but predominantly has been the business. I think it's only the last two years where I've been thinking more and more is it necessary to be so close to everything here because you want a bit more of an outdoor, fresh air type lifestyle. Yeah. Now things change, so we'll see what, what happens in the future. And when you originally went there, was it because you were, it was for your own business? You were, you were looking to supply, basically looking for suppliers for your own products? Is that how it yes. started? So, so it started because, um, yeah, it was, a bit, it, was an opportun- it was an opportunity that came up. I, I was in South Africa working for a big retail chain store, and we had a very small sourcing office here in um, Hong Kong, which was a kind of a gateway to China. And we were looking to really expand. It was a, it was a two-man operation. Um, at that time, that company that I was working for was a big public company. They... We're going through a lot of different changes internally. They did rights issues, shareholdership changed. And when I came here just at that kind of intersection of time and to kind of set up the sourcing office in a bigger scale. And as it happens, um, we unbundled it and took it as a standalone company, me and my business partner. And um, we just you know, realized that it, it doesn't fit into that culture. So we actually unbundled it and we separated it as a standalone business. And it was one of the best things we did because through that, having that infrastructure here, um, it's 
it's led itself to so many other business opportunities that we've managed to build and grow. So it's like a foundation and a backbone to things for us. Yeah, I, I always wonder that certain places that have that you could live in that would really grow your business just because of the location where you are. And of course, China is one. I often think about uh, Texas because I see so many, so many entrepreneurs that are creating private label products, selling on Amazon. Yes. And it's yes. like everybody lives in Texas, and I'm the only one that doesn't, right? Sometimes <laughs> I think that. Like, I, I want to be able to go out for a walk and chat with 10 other people that are, you know, creating products and, and, yes. get, and getting sourcing them from China. And no, if I go out for a walk, it's just me and I'm listening to a podcast, right? So <laughs> <laughs> well, you, you, I, I think you're right because. I do think an environment, you know, it's like community and environment breeds, you know, uh, feed off each other in a way, right? If you're surrounded by people all day that are in business, that are entrepreneurial, that are, in our case, you know, in Ho Hong Kong's very international, very mixed. I mean, you can't go out anywhere without meeting half a dozen people, either in your industry or just in, in business that's interesting. So it does kind of foster a culture and a mentality of, of entrepreneurship or business of doing things, presenting opportunities. So I do think that's the case. Although like the last five, six years with, like you said, with podcasts, online courses, online communities, it's just exploded. I do feel like you, you can find your communities online more than ever now, but there is something to be said for that FaceTime communication and just, sitting in the same room as people that are like-minded and sharing experiences and talking. So, yeah, you, you're right. The, I think the environment definitely creates a, a lot of what happens in your space. Yeah, absolutely. And tell me, does most of the people there speak English or did you have a big period where you, you couldn't speak to anybody? <laughs> so, so Hong Kong, most people speak English. Um, where our offices are, which is in China, in Shenzhen, because that's obviously all the factories are located in Shenzhen. Yeah. Oh, sorry, not, sorry, let me rephrase, they're located in China. Shenzhen's one city in, in China. China's huge. Um, so, you know, all the action actually happens in China, which is just across the border here in Hong, from here in Hong Kong. Um, so in China, it's a lot harder without English. Um, I don't speak Chinese, but a lot of my staff speak Chinese. We've got about just over 50 people in the office there um, in different areas from shipping and engineering and compliance and things like that. But, um, you know, they all speak Chinese, um, which helps a lot, especially communicating with the manufacturers. You know, I find a lot of the times, you know, we can deal with a problem. It might take me sometimes an hour of discussion <laughs> with them. Trying to understand things and make sure we're clear on things, and then my staff talk to me in Chinese, and we wrap it up a lot quicker. But what I do find very interesting is that their written English is uh, is uh, quite good. Actually, they like to chat and type messages through. You know, WeChat is the app we use here. Yeah. It's like a WhatsApp or Facebook Messenger equivalent, but which everybody in China uses WeChat. It's huge. So, like, so their written message is much clearer. And when they send you emails, it's much clearer, especially if you bullet point it and to make it point by point. So yeah, you, you can survive, but um, it, it, it is 
good to have somebody around that can speak Chinese, especially if you're traveling around a lot to factories, you know, more outside factories. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's good. It's good to know that a uh, written skill is, uh, we see that when we're sourcing products and yeah. everybody's sending random message to everybody on Alibaba and we get sometimes some replies that are, you know, very professional, very well, well written. We also yes. sometimes do get something that is not, but, it's still understandable, right? Because if they wrote to me in Chinese, definitely my answer would not be as pretty as the one that they gave me. So, True. so when sourcing there, let's before we get before we get into the sourcing, in 2016 you launched the global TQM. This yes. was under the global regency uh, umbrella, right? So, right. Uh, can you explain a little bit about what is the global regency and then what is the global TQM? Sure. So Glo Global Regency is really our, our main core business, which um, we, we handle and manage the supply chain for a lot of like very large companies and brands, our own brands, and also for some other companies with their private label brands. So, you know, in order to make that business model work, it, it's, it's huge volumes from China on a very regular basis where, you know, you can manage everything from supplier um, audits and supplier factory compliance, you know, through to production and quality control, you know, just managing the whole process from A to Z and, you know, testing products, qualifying them and things like that. So one, one of the challenges with that business is you need very large volumes to sustain it and make it viable because there's a lot of resource and time and energy that goes into that. So if you're not doing tens of millions or hundreds of millions of dollars in export value out of China, it doesn't really justify the infrastructure. So what we started doing is branching out into our own brands and private labeling our own brands and selling them. And then how Global TQM really came about was just by being here in China and having that presence, you know, just a lot of friends, family, you know, small entrepreneurs come to me or be referred to me and say, oh, I've got this problem with my factory. I try to get samples. They don't reply to me um, or I'm looking for something. I've got a great idea. How can I like, find a factory to make it for me in China? And, like, you know, friends and family, so you just help them, right? So, like, I would just say, well, what's the problem? And I'd say, okay, give me your supplier's details. I'd get one of the girls in my office to call them. You know, I'd sit at my desk and call them and try to understand what's going on. And in 10 minutes, we solved the problem. They were going around for weeks and weeks. You know, literally communication issues, just misunderstandings, you know, maybe not reading between the lines because, you know, it's culturally sometimes the Chinese don't say exactly what they mean or want and then you're not picking up the innuendos. Mm -hmm. So... You know, we solved a lot of problems like that. And, you know, people always say, oh, well, charge me for your time. And I go, how do I charge you for my time? <laughs> it's like, whatever I charge you, you're going to be unhappy, <laughs> you know. Um, but the more that happened, I did want to try and find a way of how can we break up what we do into little bite-sized done-for-you services and really offer small entrepreneurs, home businesses, or even medium-sized businesses like that value and, and access to the, the, the resource we have on the ground in China and create little bite-sized services on demand. And that's really kind of conceptually how Global TQM came to be. And it just took 
it's taken about two years to figure out what that model is and how it what it should look like because it's quite challenging especially when it comes to sourcing you know sourcing people think oh i want product a you'll go and you'll find product a in 15 days and it's done but it doesn't work like that you know it's sourcing is a process it's, it's meeting a number of suppliers doing all the sampling weeding out the good from the bad there's a lot of stuff that happens it's what i call homework and yes. and and a lot of the time people don't really understand just how much homework is involved in that. And then, you know, just even talking to the manufacturer after that to get your requirements right and get the specs right. And it's, it's a lot. So it was hard to figure out how do you give that as a service and, you know, and have like a kind of a scope and some boundaries because it can go on forever. Yeah. Um, so I think, you know, Global Team was born out of that need and it's taken two years to kind of refine the model. And I, I kind of think we had a good space now because I quite enjoyed helping entrepreneurs because by heart I'm an entrepreneur. And, um, you know, it was quite satisfying when we solved these problems. You know, I was like, oh, that was nice. That was fun. I'm sure there must be loads of other people out there with similar cases or similar stories. So, you know, that was the goal, to be able to help small businesses, entrepreneurs, or even just startups or home businesses, you know, access China, have a team on the ground on demand that can guide them through this, help them with these things, and, you know, materialize it for them. Nice. So, David, there's a lot of people that think of China. Yeah. Uh, when we mention, I don't know, sometimes people ask me, how do you do it? And I say, okay, I find the products in China. And I do this and this. And when you mention China, some people say, oh, that is bad product or cheap quality. And in their defense, I would like to say that it's, I can order super high quality from China if I'm willing to pay for it. Right. Yes. Just like Apple gets iPhones done there. Not, yes. not that they have high quality or not. But I think the problem that people hear about the cheap products is the fact that a lot of us North Americans are now willing to pay, so we try to cheap out, and we get give ourselves the bad quality. Yes, um, is that really what's happening? I think I think a lot of the time it is what's happening. Um, I don't think it's intentional on any level. That's all. Hmm. Think something I realized over the years. It's not. It's not the factory's intention to give bad quality, and it's not often the buyer's intention to buy bad quality. It's, in fact, it's the opposite, but it's a result of kind of sometimes just lack of knowledge or experience. Like I find that like buyers are often driven by price. So they just go, oh, yeah. I've got to retail that at $99, which means I've got to pay $50 for argument's sake. And it's this backwards calculation, right? Mm -hmm. What are you going to sell it at? What do you have to buy it for at? And that becomes such the goal and such the focus in all discussions and all negotiations that no one, people really start to say, okay, well, if I'm going to push my supply to $50 and they were at $60, for example, why, why are they getting down to $50, right? <laughs> what, what, what are they cutting out of the product? What material are they changing? What packaging are they foregoing, right? There's a lot of detail and specifications that need to be considered. So I think often people turn a blind eye to that because they're so focused on I can sell so many if I get to this price and I can make this yeah. much margin if I get to that price. But I find people make that mistake once or twice and then 
when I start getting returns and the problems, mm. uh, the, the thinking changes. Um, and I think vice versa with the factories. I think, you know, factories, there, there's this Eastern Western cultural thing going on where people assume the manufacturers know the quality standards that you want mm. and know how the product's going to be used and the environment it's going to be used in. <clears throat> and it's not always the case. You know, often the factory will be proud that they met your price point, right? They go, well, I, I thought you wanted me to cost down the product to get to that price point because that's all you were focused on. Yeah. You never said to me once that, oh, the product must pass this drop test. You know, the material must be this thick. I want this grade of uh, fabric. You never said that. All you said was, I want $50. Hmm. So they found a way to get to $50. So it really is... You know, I say like you've got to build relationships with suppliers and part of that is you owning that responsibility and saying, okay, let's spec what I need. Let's be clear about what my requirements are so that, you know, it's win-win and there's no misunderstandings. And, and that's a process that, that is continuous. Yeah, I love that answer because a lot of the sellers, they do not know everything they need. Uh, exactly. That's why they don't tell the manufacturers because a lot of sellers don't know there's a drop test like you just mentioned or, exactly. or what the quality has to be. And I'm guessing in that case, that's, that's why we need somebody like you that has uh, their feet on the ground. And let's talk about actually something that you mentioned it was some of the mistakes that sellers make. Yeah. And there, there's one that I hear so many sellers, even in courses, training courses, everybody teaches this the same way. And it is how we place an order, we pay 30% up front, and then you pay 70% when the rest is done and all, yeah. all normal. Then you send an inspection team. And I always think, isn't that too late? After the product is done, you're sending, you're not going to fix it. You're just going to inspect it. How? <laughs> and you, anybody, you, you, you just hit the sweet spot of exactly what I always say to our clients, you hit the nail on the head. There's an expression, you can't inspect quality into products. It doesn't matter how much you inspect them, you can't inspect quality into a product. Once it's produced, it's produced. Yes. So, so one of the things that we've come up with, we call it the front-loaded order bomb, okay? And front-loaded is obvious because we say that's, Give that information up front and settle that up front mm -hmm. before you even place the order, before you even place, or, I mean, pay the deposit. It's, and, and, what, and when I say order bomb, what do I mean? I, I just coined the term, funny enough, because like a, bill of, a bomb stands for bill of materials. And it's quite common in manufacturing. You know, every product's got a bill of materials. Every little part, every component is made up from a bill of materials. So an order bomb is kind of like this list of requirements around your order. I call it the order bomb, the orders bill of materials, like requirements and specs, right? And we like to devise this template exactly for that reason because I say if you haven't specified it up front and the factory hasn't signed off on it up front, when you front load that, don't pay the deposit because it's not fair to the manufacturer for you to come back retrospectively and say, oh, this packaging is terrible, it's crumbling, or the product's breaking when it's dropped, or I don't like that color. 
And you know, I've had guys say, oh, I ordered a green, I get a green, but it's not the right green. I, I showed them a picture of the green. I said, you showed them a picture of the green. I said, I can take a picture of green with 10 different cameras, with 10 different lightings, it'll come out different. It's so subjective, right? You yeah. can't really blame people. You can't blame the manufacturer for that. <laughs> I said, what you're supposed to do is give them the Pantone color of the green and go, that's the green I want. And you put that in your purchase order or in your, our we call the order bomb, and you specify every detail, the packaging, the color, and you give, you've got to make sure that every requirement you have is measurable and it has a spec or a, a standard that you can refer to. And it's those little details that make the difference because I find when you start talking that language with the suppliers, they actually do understand it. And very often they won't, they'll look at that purchase order bomb that we put together and go, oh, I'm sorry, we cannot, cannot, cannot. Okay, okay, no problem. And you realize, wow, they do know exactly what they're doing most of the time. It's just that if you don't ask, you know, they, they assume you don't care about it. And your requirement was the price. Mm -hmm. Tick. <laughs> If you yeah. didn't have requirements of anything else, have they technically done anything wrong? Probably not. Now, yeah, there are good manufacturers who say, oh, please, we don't want to cut this because it's bad quality. And that's why I say if you, the whole journey is finding great suppliers who give you advice and they are the manufacturers. They do know what's going to cut the cost in a reasonable way. But that's a journey, right? We've been doing this for 16 years. I've been doing it for longer, but I've been living here. But every day I'm meeting new suppliers and talking to them and, and like every, every, every week we find new suppliers that we go, oh, these guys are great. They're very proactive mm. and interactive. But it never takes away the need for us to become experts at our product. It never, ever takes it away. It's just yeah. you, you don't know what you don't know. And the more you get into it, you realize, oh, I should specify that next time. Oh, I should be clear on that next time. And and you do have to build and nurture those relationships. Otherwise, you're going to fail. Yes. I mean, I actually, a story, a story came to mind that is actually more, more shocking than anything about communication and what you perceive may not be what your other person perceives. And this happened here in Canada yeah. at, at an airport. And it was snowing lots. Like you can see that it's snowing right now. And there was a plane about to land. And one of the guys was cleaning the runway with a yes. snowplow. And the guy on the radio from the tower radioed him and said, clear the runway. And he said, 10-4, I'm, I'm doing it. And wow. he, he understood, clear the snow off the it's runway. Snow. And the plane landed, then crushed. Uh, and, uh, well, he died. The plane, wow. uh, they, yeah, they hit the snowplow. And that was the, it was misunderstanding. And in this case, it was mortal, but when it comes to a product, it's not mortal, but it can definitely, you know, cost a lot of money and, and headaches, and it's not the manufacturer's real fault. And, and as, as a buyer, I don't want to say I'm at fault because I knew what green I wanted, right? Exactly. But so that's why it's so important to have great communication and make sure that they understood what, um, what exactly. I wanted. And to that point, uh, your stories, I mean, it's a sad story, but it, it's on the mark. 
that it is about perception, right? Like what, through what lens are you looking at the question through, yeah. you know? And, and the, like the one thing I like preach all the time is at the end of the day, who's accountable for the product in every factory, every mistake the factory makes you are because you're the buyer, right? Who's going to suffer the returns? You are. Mm-hmm. Who's going to pay the price when customers hit, you got to refund customers. You are. Right, yeah, you're going to go back to your manufacturer and you're going to complain and argue and up and down, but it's not going to change your returns. It's not going to change the credits you've given. It's not going to change your financial losses. Maybe you'll get some compensation, but but ultimately you, you're going to bear the brunt of it, so you need to be so accountable for it and just become really good at dealing with that. Are there some risks of importing from China? So you said earlier, we don't know, we, we don't know. And a lot of people find a product on Alibaba. They find the per or find the product, find the demand on Amazon, go to Alibaba, find the product. And then after they get a quote that seems decent to them, they order the product. Yes. A lot of these products sometimes are not allowed to cross borders without certain, certain things being done to them, right? Like I know wood products have to be fumigated. Yes. A lot of people import wood products because it's just a small quantity. And what are the yes. risks of this for, let's say, for us as the buyers? What can happen to us? And what are basically what are the risks in general? So, so uh, there's loads of risks that are kind of categorize risks into um, few ca- a few categories. There's financial risks in terms of payments to factories. Mm-hmm. So paying deposits, paying balance payments, and having an exposure there, that's one risk. Um, I won't go into each one in detail, but um, that you know that's one risk. When should you pay your deposit to the supplier? How do you know that it's not going to disappear? What do you do if they're late on production? Can you recover it? Things like that. So there's a financial risk. Then, then there's um, what you're talking about is like the regulatory and compliance risks. Mm-hmm. And, and, and the regulatory and compliance risks are... Um, the one example you gave, which is like, should this, should this be fumigated before it passes through customs? Is the product allowed to be sold in that country? Mm. You know, each country's got its safety standards and um, telecommunication standards and electromagnetic interference standards. And I mean, standards is a whole industry on its own. So you do, and, and, and safety being, you know, the one most people talk about, which is, um, you know, are the materials toxic or not toxic? Is something small, can it be swallowed by a child? Then it might not be safe in that market. Yeah. And there's, there's always compliance standards and requirements around every product. Um, so if, I mean, the risks are, if it's a sample going in and out, you know, maybe you're going to be okay or maybe it's going to get detained at customs and um, maybe it's going to be a delay or maybe they're going to confiscate it, you know, who knows? If it's a whole shipment, um, then it becomes a huge financial risk because <clears throat> some countries police products at the time of import. That if they're not verified as compliant or you can't show the right certificates, then um, you know they'll either stop the shipment, want you to turn it around, or confiscate the goods, or maybe even just detain it for a week or two while you're scrambling around trying to prove that they comply and have the right certificates that they're supposed to have. Um, so, excuse me. So, you know, knowing those things are important. The suppliers don't always know 
exactly which requirements you need. And that's because either they haven't shipped to that market before, or in many cases, unfortunately, there's a lot of people out there that don't care much about compliance because they sell small quantities, they sell under the radar. I mean, we've had that so many times where I say to the factory, well, what happens is we've got a compliance team, fortunately. So we start, you know, talking to the factory about all these requirements and they start going, oh, this is so complicated, this is so hard. I go, what are you talking about? You sell tons of this product to this country already. You know, I know you do. We've had this discussion. I go, yeah, but my customer doesn't need any of this. And I go, well, that doesn't make it right. <laughs> yes. <laughs> you know, and, and that's where you talk about like the cultural misunderstandings. Like, no one, they've been selling to a country before. No one's even asked for some of these requirements and standards. And now you are like, can you really fault them for not thinking it's needed? Because they go, well, our customers have never needed it for like five years or 10 years of shipping. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's, yeah, it's one of those things of accountability. So I think it's always those, it's the product risk. So, so the risks are the financial risks of payments to factories is the compliance and regulatory risks of the product. And then of course there's general quality control risks, right? Like, um, is, um, is the quality right? Is it reliable? Is it safe? Um, does it pass a drop test? Things like that. So I kind of break it up into those two, um, those three kind of categories when I think about risk. So, David, there's there's something that, for example, after dealing with Chinese manufacturers and selling for for many years, you yeah. start to develop certain relationships. So, in my case, for example. Inside certain brands, I can go to the same manufacturer where yes. we built a relationship that I, I actually uh, enjoy a lot of the people that I, I even get Christmas gifts sent yes. by them to me. And uh, it, it's, it's really great. But until you get that, you go to Alibaba, was one of them, for example, go to Alibaba, do a search. And yeah. that, that product that you're looking for, you get... 1,500 suppliers, for example. Yes. How do you know which one to pick? If, if you're starting out right now, how do you, how do you go through those suppliers? You're going to check a, uh, check a couple boxes like verified supplier yeah. and, and gold supplier, and, and now you, you're left with 500. How do you yes. go through that? Yeah, that's, that's the golden question. Um, <laughs> It's very challenging, um, and that's why I always say the sourcing is just a journey, right? It's like you're building a list of reliable suppliers over years and years and years. And, I mean, sourcing from Alibaba, I mean, yeah, how do you filter the list? It's, you do look at their verifications, if they've got a gold status or if they've been checked or audited and things like that. I don't always feel comfortable with that per se, but the kind of things we do is we communicate with those suppliers. So one of the things we do is um, we'll talk to them, communicate with them through chat or messaging or whatever. And, you know, one filter for me is how well they communicate with me and how responsive they are and how um, well they present themselves, how knowledgeable they are when I ask certain questions. Sometimes I ask stupid questions just to see how they're going to reply because you, you want to try find i guess it's like it's like anything right it's like dating a person right you you ask questions see if your thoughts are aligned 
<laughs> and you know, just through that, you try to weed out people that um, kind of don't respond well, don't respond nicely. Um, I try to be realistic as well because I, I'm not actually looking for the people that are saying everything's no problem, no problem, no problem. Because that's if they're telling you that at that stage, I've yet to find a case where everything was no problem. It yes. always becomes a problem once you start getting into the details. So I actually look for the people that kind of, actually challenge me back on things. Oh, are you sure you need this because the cost is $5 more and um, we can do it, but it takes more time and, you know, it's very complicated. And like, yeah. even though I feel like they've been harder, I feel like it's probably because they've got more experience. Yes, you know, yes, yes. I don't, I'm not looking for the open arm accommodating people because those are the guys that either don't know yet what's coming or they're just looking to grab an order at all costs, right? And so I look for the people that I just feel are sincerely asking the right questions, engaged at the right level. So, and then hopefully, you know, so, so that's just through communication. I try to weed some of them out. Then the biggest thing is just sampling. Honestly, like <clears throat> it, it's, it's hard to know what a product is until you get a sample. So I, I always say to people, you've got to sample, order lots of samples from the suppliers because how do you know what, they're quoting on. If they're quoting you ten dollars, other ones eight, other ones nine, you really need to see the product and touch and feel it. I think sampling is a massive, um, like uh, just the biggest deal to me. Mm -hmm. um, you know, sometimes you get products before you even negotiate on the price with them. You can see the product a mile away is a different quality, a different standard, a different level. So you know, I say if you've got to narrow it down, order a bunch of samples from them. Once you get the samples in, literally just toss out the ones that the guy sends you rubbish samples. Just go, no, no, no. Narrow it down to products you actually like and then go back to those suppliers and, you know, continue talking to them. Um, you know, th th those are the only things you can do and, you know, work, work through it in terms of communication, in terms of sampling, and then in terms of trying to build an order bomb, you know, see if they go through through that process well with you and communicate well with you. Um, personally, I like to meet the people face to face. I'm spoiled because I'm here in China. I can most of the time. Um, Skype calls is another great way. I think talking to them on Skype is important. You know, although the communication is communication is one of those things, like I say, you've got to have a good relationship with your suppliers and be able to talk to them. If it's too hard, where like every single thing you say they don't get or they don't understand, um, you have to move on sometimes. You don't want to just force it because their price is right or maybe they even have the best quality product from a sample perspective because it's just too hard if you can't communicate. So you're looking for that balance and, and it's hard to kind of nail it down to one individual thing, but it's as you do these sourcing projects, you figure it out as you go and you find out who you want to work with. Yeah, and you mentioned something about you ask um, on purpose. You ask a dumb question to see how they answer, and exactly. that, I, I, I like that technique. And is there the opposite? Is there some of the questions that we should be asking? Some of the uh, the smart questions? Yeah, there's lots of smart questions to ask. <laughs> <laughs> um, what I try to do, I try to get the supplier to teach me, because I I, t I, t I kind of take an approach of um, I actually called the phrase the lure method um learn i forget what it stands for now but um it's something i was, I was teaching someone the other day 
But the one thing is you've got to learn from your manufacturer. So I start off by taking a bit of an approach that I don't know anything about this product or this product category. Mm-hmm. So I just act like, okay, guys, look, it's the first time I'm doing this type of product. I do loads of other products. Tell me what I need to know. I'm shipping to this country. What do I need to know? What are the standards? What are the different materials I can use? What what are the um, things that are going to affect the price here? I just act completely dumb. And the good factories will pile it on. Oh, you need this, you need this, and we can do this finish. And if you want cheap price, we can do this packaging. And here's your choices. And you're, you know, it's like anything, right? You figure out who knows what they're talking about. How about one more thing? On one of the manufacturers that I deal with for a while, I found a way to get one product that was oversized and to get it into the standard size. Okay. And I did this by asking them if they could shrink it. And basically it was like a centimeter, right? I'm not sure what that is in inches, but it was like a centimeter that they had to shrink it to fit in the standard. And easily they did that for me easily. Okay. Now my product since that day became $4 cheaper per unit. Wow. Because I cut one centimeter on it. And this was just because of the, the oversized difference in, in shipping and fees and all that. Wow. That's amazing. So $4 per unit. It was fantastic. So when you say $4 per unit, you're saying your landed cost was $4 lower, not the actual product cost that you buy from at the factory. No, it's uh, not landed. It included the Amazon okay. fees. It included okay, the Amazon. Nice. Yeah, the pick and pack fee for oversized was uh, included in the in the $4. Got it. Okay, yeah. So, so overall, you got a whole cost yeah. saving. People don't get that. It's massive, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and then when we multiply that by thousands of units, it, it's really, really great savings. But... Above the savings, my main advantage was that now I had four extra dollars for my PPC or that I could give to my client instead and now my competitors could not keep up with me. And I asked my manufacturer if he could keep that between the two of us. Yes. So he wouldn't just start offering it to other people. And he kept it. He kept it between us. And there are... For the last two years, I was the only one with that size. And now there's two other people that they probably copied the idea, but not from him. Yes. So so in this case, I had him. It's almost as if this was my own IP, my intellectual property, that it was nothing yes. written. But he kept it. But normally that is not possible. Uh, is there a way to make sure that you can protect your ideas, your intellectual property? <laughs> uh, that's a, a long subject. <laughs> um, so, so firstly, I mean, what you did is great, and the fact that your supplier looked after it for so long mm-hmm. is actually really good, and it's a testament to how important a good relationship is, and 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 that's really important. Just having a good relationship with a supplier, it really because at at the end of the day, it's going to become. Do they like you? Do they want to honor your relationship? Do they respect your relationship? It's like anything. You can't guarantee somebody doesn't cheat on you. But generally, if they're good people and they like you, you're reducing the chance of them wanting to do that. So relationships important, and they did keep it confidential, which is great. At the end of the day, everything comes out in the market. It's a competitive industry we're in. 
people talk to people, people figure it out, there's competition, as you say. Um, but the key is you, you had that window of opportunity, right, which is exactly how you've got to stay competitive. You just find those little windows of opportunity. Um, I, I'm actually just making a note of this, so I don't forget to tell you this. Um, the window of opportunity, you just got to keep looking for those windows of opportunity. In terms of protecting it, like, two things I say in China you can do. You can sign an NNN agreement, which is a non-disclosure, non-circumvention um, agreement, um, and non, uh, it's a confidentiality agreement, basically. Now, we sign them with manufacturers. We have them written in English. We have them written in Chinese. Mm. Um, they are technically enforceable, but at the end of the day, how are you going to know and prove that there was a violation? But I don't think it hurts. You know, I think if the factory is willing to sign it, um, at least it's, it's kind of a bit like that front loading. There's no misunderstanding or there's no false expectations on it. I think something you've got to be realistic about is that your manufacturer probably respected that as well because you were probably buying from them. If, you're, if you stopped buying from them or your volumes were decreasing consistently, they would be looking proactively to replace that business. and. Mm using every little bit of experience that they have to find other clients and customers. So that building that relationship with that factory, part of that is actually supporting them and growing your volumes with them. And it's like, right, a relationship works because it's win-win for both parties. So that's probably one reason they kept it so confidential. So I think signing good relationships, you know, making it win-win for them that you're buying from them, you can sign NNN agreements, especially if you've got patented products or things like that. The NNN agreements do provide protection and they are important to sign. They're not bulletproof though. The other thing I tell everybody to do, and if you haven't done this yet, you have to do this, okay? Okay. Is register your trademark in China, okay? Yeah. So, uh, so many reasons on this, but just fundamentally... Um, international trademarks, although they are protected in China, they're a lot harder to to deal with and um, uh, manage. But I've had cases where, um, and it's not expensive, by the way, it's got a couple of hundred dollars. We're not talking like huge costs and stuff like that. I mean, we do them for people. Um, and what happens in China is it's the first to register trademark owns it, Okay. So it doesn't matter if you've got the trademark in another country. If somebody else in China has registered it um, before you, you're going to have a hard time overturning that. But what happens, especially in the space of e-commerce, and I, I can't tell you the brand, but a very good friend of mine, exactly in the space of online business, had a baby product. They were doing so well with it. Um, I mean, they were crushing it on Amazon. They were crushing it on Shopify. They were selling in the US. They were selling in Australia ordering loads and loads and loads from the, fa- from the factory. And the factory went and registered his trademark in China because they thought, well, we're going to sell this in China. Yeah. Because, you know, online, the guys do the research. It's like online's borderless, right? So the guy, people researching the brand and the product, see the reviews on Amazon, see it selling in all these other countries. It's so successful. It's like a brand in the eyes of the Chinese, right? And the factory thought, well, this guy doesn't sell in China, registered his trademark in China, started selling in the China domestic market. So even people searching outside could find it on JD.com, 
on China, Amazon. It was like a nightmare. It was a disaster. Mm. And and he, he couldn't understand. I was chatting to him just casually. And, and I said, no, this is very odd. I said, have you got the trademark? I said, just tell them to take it offline. Even, you know, even the big Chinese e-commerce sites respect IP, you know, if you've got your trademark. And he tried it. No. They all the chicks said, no, some they've, they've produced their trademark certificate. They've got the trademark in China. There's nothing you can do because he produced all his trademark certificates saying, I've got a, it's a national trademark for this, for this. But it was a nightmare. Anyway, long story short, his factory had gone and registered the trademark, which created two problems. Number one, they could sell in China. And number two, they could actually give him a really hard time at customs if he bought somewhere else. Because in China, you know, if, if you don't own the trademark, um, whoever owns a trademark in China has got the manufacturing rights in China as well. Mm-hmm. So if a Chinese factory is manufacturing inside China to export it, or that even though they're not selling it in China, it still creates problems because at customs they might check it, or you know if somebody's really unscrupulous they might say. I mean, it happens with some big brands. You know, it does. It does. It, it, it really does happen with our guns. They'll send people to stop the factory producing, saying, oh, we're the Chinese trademark owners and you know how to produce this. And then it, it just stalls in for two weeks of paperwork or arguments of, you know, legal issues mm. to to carry on with the product. And then the factories kind of don't want to deal with RP problems. So the simplest thing is register your trademark in China mm-hmm. and so, so my friend that we, it's been a year and a half now on this one case, which we've just won the contest on the trademark dispute. So in China, when we, what happened is we, we filed the trademark under certain criteria and we contested the other people that had registered it being the factory. And it's taken us a year and a half and thousands and thousands of dollars literally thousands of dollars in legal fees in time, effort, energy. And we just won the first round of contest, which is great, but it's still a year and a half and thousands of dollars. And I think for two, 300 bucks, he could have stretched his trademark in China. So I say to everybody now, I go like, if if you put, and uh, sorry, just what I didn't say on that is because if you're running a brand, Remember, your biggest reputation, you talk about protection and how to protect yourself. Your brand's like your reputation, right? It's like tons of people can sell the same product, like a wallet, right? How many people sell wallets? But it's what brand is it? Because your brand represents your customer service. All your reviews are related to your brand online. Um, People trust you because they know you. They know your brand. You know, it's, it's everything from customer service to product quality to online reviews. It's all connected to your brand, right? Think, think about every product. There's hundreds of people doing the same product, all connected to your brand. So I say your best form of protection is registering your trademark and just making sure that you're growing a brand that um, is protected and that you do a great job with it. Because even like with, in your case, you know, you, you had a great window of opportunity, saving $4, doing great sales or great margin or whatever the case may be. People are getting to know you, your brand, your pricing, your product quality, right? So, you know, those windows of opportunity come and go, right? They, like, you got a $4 opportunity for a year, maybe two years. Maybe you had a color advantage because somebody came with a new color scheme. That's the game, right? You're always innovating to find opportunities. Yes. But, but what, what over the arc of time, all those little opportunities, people forget very quickly, right? 
they forget them so quickly. But what they never forget is, oh, I bought that brand and the quality was great, the customer service was great, the price was good. They always seem to be innovating. I don't know why. You know, they were cheaper for a while, then they had better colors, then they had better packaging. It's just something about that brand. So I say the most important thing to do is protect your brand. Because over the arc of time, people can't copy every little thing you do because it takes years to build up that goodwill. Yes. Yeah. That's, that's the business. We're in the yeah. business of copying pretty much right now. We see sales funnels as basically copying somebody else's idea that's working, products that are working. And that's a great advice. And at the same time, David, that's a little bit scary. What can be done if that decides to go, uh, for example, on Black Hat? Somebody yeah. wants to stop your brand from coming, uh, right? They, they don't want you on fourth quarter to have inventory on Amazon. Yeah. Somebody can register your brand, the trademark in China, and stop you from importing it or exporting in that case. Well, that can give you a hard time. China has, um, we've been using it for years now. So China have been updating their laws. So now you can still export out of China. But um, they might delay you a week or two weeks and you miss that selling yeah. window. So for me, it's just like one of those things I say, you know, if you ever had, he was like, oh, if, if, if I had a crystal ball as an entrepreneur, what would I have done? Right? I say spend the 300 bucks and rest your trademark in China and hope you never have to use it. Yeah, but yeah. when you do, you'll go, it was for nothing. And <laughs> you, know, you know, there may be another advantage is the fact that Brand registry in the U.S., they ask yeah. for a trademark, but they don't ask for a U.S. trademark. Yes. So if you, if you don't have a trademark in the U.S., you may use, and this is not official advice, but I think you may be able to use your Chinese trademark to brand register in the U.S. It's, it's a, I, I don't know. It's, I, I wonder. Um, it's worth looking into. Yeah, definitely got to try. Yeah. Definitely with I'll, I'll I'll even look into that myself because that's that's very interesting because I do think no matter what I know lawyers advise oh don't worry you protect it under the Geneva Convention as long as you register in one country you got a year to register in China and elsewhere and I go yes 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 until you go through what we went through and you say yeah. okay I want to register now but somebody beat you to it yeah you might still you. Maybe you will win and you do have the right, but how much money are you going to spend defending that and how much time is it going to take for you to resolve that, right? Yes. I'd, I'd go, it's, to me, it's like you set up a business, you open a bank account, you set up your company, there's certain A, Bs, and Cs you do. To me, especially in our industry, is register your trademark in China and it's just like, it's like, a, it's like the cheapest insurance policy you'll ever have. Yeah, got it. And... and to answer your first question is uh, no, I do not have one. So, <laughs> so I'm going to look at. we're going to help you get one. <laughs> <laughs> cool. And now tell me, uh, is that something that uh, Global TQM offers or no? Yeah, we absolutely do. Yeah. Uh, we never used to, but just through demand, we do. So, so we, uh, I mean, we do we do trademark packages. I think it's three hundred ninety nine dollars for unlimited searches. There's a process of doing a trademark search, checking if it's available in China, maybe mm -hmm. doing some iterations of it to comply with Chinese regulations. So, you know, that takes about one or two weeks. Um, and, and if you've got to research, you know, there's unlimited searches. 
And then, and then once we settle on that, we put the application in. The good news is as soon as that application is in, you protect it. And we normally charge, I think it's like $399. And I think when we do promotions, we do them at like $299. I mean, we can chat after this. Or we can maybe do a link and do a special promo for anybody that listens to your podcast. No problem. Um, mm-hmm. But definitely, it's like I do all my brands. I'm in litigation on three or four at the moment. Friends, my own. I'd factories, I've been to the Canton Fair and seen my brands on their shelves. Wow. <laughs> And you try, and I went to I went to the the organizers' departments in at Canton Fair. They wouldn't talk to me without a Chinese lawyer there. I've got a Chinese lawyer out there, which took him a day to come because he wasn't at my beck and call, unfortunately. Yeah. And by the time he came with a pile of documents, it took three days before that factory took anything off the shelf. <clears throat> and I'd go like, "You're kidding me, right? Like three days is like everything for me." The, Fair only lasts four or five days. It's um, it's. You want to know one? And, and the factories know what's selling well. They've got access to customs data. They've got access to purchase orders. Now I'm, I'm not saying everyone's unscrupulous. I'm saying it's your responsibility to, to to protect your brand. And most people don't get that. And you know how e-commerce is borderless now, right? Amazon can ship into China, out of China. Um, yeah. There's JD.com. There's Tmall. It's like. Borders are disappearing quickly, so brand protection to me is everything. Yeah, actually, uh, I found one of my brands once on Alibaba, and it was my yeah. my pictures, everything, and it was there. And if you had a Chinese trademark, you can get it off straight away. Yeah, but I did. But luckily, it was uh, I contacted. It was one of my manufacturers, and yeah. I contacted them, and. I actually was shocked to find out that they had no harm. They actually thought I would be happy because they were doing me a favor by showing my brand. Exactly. And, and I explained, uh, no, I, I don't want because people may ask to to copy the label and stuff. And Yeah, but let me put a spin on that. It's not that they thought you would be happy. I'll tell you exactly what it is. It's because they know you were selling well, people will recognize the brand and the product and come to them because they know they make it. Okay. They but were they using were... you as as uh, official abate, yeah. which I mean, by the way, that's where NNN agreement solves that problem because if you had signed an NNN agreement with them, um, with non disclosures and confidentiality, they would know they're not allowed to do that. Okay. Yeah, they removed it immediately, and I of just course, have... they want your business. Yeah, they. Hundred percent. So. Look, these things happen. At the end of the day, though, you just need to make sure that you are in the driver's seat. <laughs> yeah. You don't want them to turn around and say, oh, but we have the trademark in China, so that's why we put an Alibaba. You go, uh, what, what are you talking about? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's very good to know. So, David, let everybody know where they can find you, where they can find Global TQM, sure. everything about you. So it's very easy. You just go to globaltqm.com. That's one word. And um, there's actually a button there you can click to book a call. And that's got to click there to schedule a call. And then um, just follow the steps. And then I, if they want to talk to me directly, they can just put in the comment box when they're booking the call. Um, want to speak to David? Some people do that. And then I'll take the call. Otherwise, um, Simon, my... 2RC on these things takes the calls 
And yeah, we can talk about every individual's needs, requirements, if they need help sourcing, if they need help checking factories, if they just need advice or, you know, guidance. You know, we, we, we here on demand to help people do business in China. David, thank you very much for the Golden Nuggets. It was a pleasure having you here. For everybody listening, this is David Hoffman, and you are listening to the QA Selling Online. David, thank you. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thanks for subscribing to FailFast Podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please leave a review and visit failfastpodcast.com for show notes, Quinn's social media, or even to tell us your story.